Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. We're going to go ahead and jump right into this. Uh, we've got a sermon that we're going to pick up uh, already in progress. This sermon is a Christian preaching about how to identify a cult. Now, you might wonder why I chose this sermon. Well, over on Red Letters, you know Red Letters, right? That's my other project. It's my Patreon. You can find it patreon.com slash redletters. Uh, it's uh, based on my book, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the, uh, at the Worst Moral and Practical Teachings in History. You can get a copy of that book for free, by the way, when you go over to Red Letters and uh, become a patron. Uh, we are in a section of the book where we are asking the question, was Jesus a cult leader, and how would you know? Was Jesus a cult leader? How would you know? Well, uh, obviously, I've got a few answers, at least uh, a few suggestions at some answers. We'll go uh, more into detail. Uh, we, we spoke generally uh, this week. And uh, the next week, we will go into more detail on why I think Jesus, in fact, was a cult leader. Mostly, we talked about why it's so hard to know. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think that by the definitions that we tend to use today, it's hard to reach any other conclusion. But it's easy for you to take a look at any definitions that I bring up. And dismiss them. What about definitions that Christians bring up? Christian preachers bring up. Conservative Christian preachers bring up. Well, that's got to be a little bit harder to ignore, doesn't it? Doesn't it? (laughs) So uh, we've got a preacher who is going to tell you a little bit more about what a cult is. We've got a little bit of commentary This might pick up in the middle of a sentence, might be a little bit jarring, but um, the reason I cut this off, he went a little bit longer than I wanted to go this week, and also his first eight minutes or so were really rambling, going nowhere, and had nothing to do with this topic. So um, we picked up, hopefully, in a place where we can really get into his topic. Um, Let's see what he has to say. There's many ways. Are you telling me everybody else is wrong? And basically, I'm saying anybody who doesn't believe in that verse we just read is wrong. Yes, I am. But let me tell you a little secret here. Perhaps you've been, you know, they don't say it maybe as boldly as I do, but every cult and every religion will tell you theirs is the only way. Oh, there's some, they're out there saying, no, you just find your own path. I understand that. The New Age, Universalism and all that, Relativism, they will say, well, well there's just many ways. But any, any construct a belief, system of beliefs, they themselves believe theirs is the only way. They may not be as bold to say so, but Jesus said, I am the only way. All belief systems have a hereafter in some form, whether they call it heaven or not. Some, uh, both in our family, here, and those who watch online at times, have a problem when I affirm what God says here. There is only one way. But listen, The beauty of Christianity, the authenticity of that, is that Christ wants us to examine the Word. They all say, I tell you to examine what I say. 
I tell you to examine what you've heard. I tell you to examine what you grew up understanding and believing. You today need to look and say, okay, I grew up this way because most of the time we believe what we believe because we grew up that way. And we don't question. And I don't know what causes change. Many times it's because there's a crisis that evolves and now the crisis has forced us to look and say, I'm hurt or it doesn't make sense and I'm going to change. But the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of the Word, is that Christ tells us He wants us to examine that. He wants us to examine the Spirit that He gives us. He encourages it. 1 John, 1 Thessalonians, He tells us to test the spirits, to test those who are speaking. Test it to see, does it line up and square up with what God's Word says? Now listen, there are many, many religions and cults who tell you you cannot do that. And that should be a red flag to you. Do you have the freedom to, to look at it? And I want to challenge you. Some of you have grown up in even this type of church, whether it be a Protestant, a Baptist, a Methodist, and you just adopted what they believe. I did that. And it wasn't until I was challenged to say, I need to study the Word and really see what God has to say. And I was a pastor in a church at the time that I really came in to realize I've grown up with a lie. He says that he had grown up in a lie, and he didn't come out of that lie until long after, or well after, he was a, a, a pastor. Now, as a pastor, he would have been studying his Bible more than anyone in his circle. And so, how does one come out of a lie? How does one recognize that they are in a religious lie? It can't be study because he was already doing that and he was still in the lie until he wasn't. And then you come out of the lie into the truth. How do you know that you didn't come out of the lie into another lie? How do you know that what you're in now is the truth? This is, this is a very hard thing to do. How much study do you need to do? How many years of seminary do you need to take? How high does your your IQ have to be? How much grace does God have to give you before you recognize that you were raised in a theological lie? And what does it take to come out of it? What if you weren't lucky enough to meet all of those circumstances necessary to recognize you were in a lie in the first place? Then what? What if you do grow up in a cult and you never recognize it's a cult because that's the lie you grew up in. Then what? And that's when I finally understood what grace was all about. And even though you've been, you may be mainstream here, you say, amen, I agree with you. I am telling you, you still need to evaluate and examine. Does what we say line up with God's word? Especially in those things that are the essentials. Now there's some things that are non-essential that we may disagree on, and that's quite all right. How do we determine what things are essential and what things aren't essential, especially if you grew up in a theological lie? How do you know? Maybe you thought something was unessential that turned out to be essential, or vice versa. I know that there are Christians who have sharp disagreements over what is and isn't essential. So... Uh, do I just accept your list of things that are essential and non-essential? Should I check your list against someone else? Who else would you recommend? 
So if they all say it, if we all say that we're the only way, then there's got to be some way to prove that, correct? Right? If we all say it, or is there no way to prove it, then I guess we're all just, we're going to believe and believe well, but we're never going to know whether who's right until we get to the end. And yet there is a way to test it. There is a way to say it. And what we do is within that, we need to say the truth, Bible says the truth will set you free. We need to find the truth. So within that, we need to find what the truth says. What the truth really says. And it says the changing truth. And here's the problem with the changing truth. If we're going to know what these are, some people anymore today, there are no absolutes. Some of you, I have family members who just believe there are no more absolutes. That truth is hazy, truth is cultural, it's relative, it's uncertain, it's debatable, it may even be unknowing. Some people believe that the truth is relative to each given situation or culture. But when it comes to Christianity, some want the message to be pliable. They want the truth to be pliable, ambiguous, uh, culturally sensitive, warm and fuzzy. All inclusive, never dividing. But that is not authentic Christianity. That is not what the Word says. The Word says it is built on truth. Why? Because God is truth. And the truth is the Word. We are to speak the truth. Yes, we are. It says speak the truth, but to do it in love. And that's where we lose it sometimes, because we speak the truth, but often it's not in love. We talk about doctrinal truth. We're going to go there in just a minute. You're going to have to stay with me. We talk about doctrinal truth. The essentials of which our faith are built upon. And some will say, well, doctrinal truth, it's no longer really known. It's no longer really defended. It's no longer really fought for. We don't talk much about it because we've gotten into God is love, Jesus is love, just love one another, which is so true. But there are parameters within that to speak the truth in love. That there must be truth given in the issue of love. So if they all say their way is the only way, as we do, how is it proven? We... Skeptics have been asking you Christians that for a very long time. Everyone has the way, and their ways are different. So how do you prove that your way is the true way? You have our complete attention. Well, it has to be in the fulfillment of the prophecies of those who began it. And who have spoken of it. Oh God, it's prophecy. Prophecy, or what I sometimes call the deep end of the kook religion pool. So let's, I mean, we could take any cult and look at the prophecies of those who began it. Were they fulfilled? And the same way we look as Jesus, even in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, gave us prophecies to be fulfilled. And we see that was fulfilled. I will challenge you, why do we talk so much about the prophecies, especially at Christmas, with the incarnation of Christ coming? Why do we talk so much about that? Because you realize everything that we believe hinges upon that. Everything. If the prophecies of the Bible, if one has failed, then just toss it out. Oh, no, you didn't. You know, I don't think I need to do the work. Someone else uh, do the work. <laughs> you could just throw in... Uh, a link with some lists of biblical failed prophecies. I imagine that you guys can find different lists. Many have failed. <laughs> now, the Christian trick is to say, well, you're just understanding the prophecy wrong. 
this is one reason why it's the deep end of the kook religion pool. <laughs> you can you can never really understand prophecy right because prophecy has to succeed. And if prophecy says that X will happen and then X doesn't happen, the Christian will just come back and say, well, you didn't understand X or happen. <laughs> it's, it's crazy making. Because our proof text is gone. And every cult that has extra curricular writings, extra biblical writings, many of them are to correct that which they failed to fulfill. Might I suggest that every Orthodox Jew considers every book of the New Testament extra biblical material? It's extra biblical material. And they would further say that, um, uh, you know, they're they're trying to repair something that they think is wrong in Judaism. Now, a Jew wouldn't say that there's anything wrong with Judaism, but the Christian seems to be trying to repair things that they see problematic with Judaism. There there are lots of things about Judaism that just didn't seem to pan out. An everlasting covenant, you know, might be one of them. And one could say that the Christian books, especially the writings of Paul, also many of the sayings of Jesus, were made to correct the either failed prophecies or the failed understandings that people had of God and his promises. And so we needed a newer testament to do that. That accusation can be, I think, very accurately and squarely aimed at the Christian books. And yet the Bible's prophecies have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. And so we can look at that and say, this has been the truth. And we base it upon the word of God. So we look at the prophecies of the word, they've been fulfilled. It gives us a security in knowing that the God's word is true. But if it hasn't been fulfilled, it can't be trusted. Toss it out. We have to be changed or to make an attempt to make it right again. Well, okay. Um, I'll play along. I will say I agree. If any of the prophecies have failed, the whole thing has to be thrown out. The Bible says that this is the final revelation. Nothing more is needed. The final revelation. This is what everyone says about their new revelation. It's the final revelation. <laughs> it's, you know, Judaism was the final revelation on the world. Well, of course it was until Christianity came along. And then that was the final revelation uh, until Islam, which was the final revelation. And, uh, Dare I say, the Latter-day Saints? And those who add to it or detract from it are to be accursed. Now, cults, listen to this. The marks of a cult is that usually their leadership changes. And usually the one who's at the top at the moment speaks, they, act, they look at that cult leader as the one who speaks as the voice of God. And they will change the prophecies because they have to. So one that would say, yes, we believe that there is going to be a second coming of the Lord Jesus. But when 1946 passed, what were they going to do? 
they should have just tossed it out and said, this whole thing's a lie. But instead, a new prophet arises, speaks for voice of God, and says, oh, no, 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 that was interpreted wrong. They see themselves. They have to correct the past. They have to continue to make it relevant to this day and culture. Now, when I say the word Christian cult, the Christian cult, what is that? What goes off in your brain? Do you think, well, that's an oxymoron. That, that doesn't make sense. Christian, these two don't go together. Why would you say Christian cult? Because there are those who, make, who take pieces of that which is true and they mix it and it sounds very Christian. And they mix that, and next thing you know, it sounds like it's a Christian cult. But the essential truths have been changed. There are some, and, and, and this morning we don't really have the time to go into it. I will visit it again. But let me tell you, there are some who have been mainstream. There has been a sociological and denominational shift. It used to be, if I had this graph, the cults were here, mainstream here, denomination, religion. But cults have been slowly moving. Many of those things, many of the topics that we see used to be called cults are now be called Christian. They're Christian. Some of you disagree with me. We had some who write about when we looked at Mormonism. Mormonism is now lined up with, oh, we're Christian. It used to be, were you Protestant or Catholic? Now it's, are you Christian? And everything falls under that. But okay, wait a minute. Are you saying that Mormons are not Christian? Are you saying that Catholics are not Christian? This should get interesting. What's the marks of a Christian cult? If it's truly Christian, it is going to adhere to the tenets of the word. Completely. I see. So it's Christian if it adheres to your understanding of what the Bible says. Got it. The Christian... The terms don't seem to go together, but they do have aspects of Christianity within that. Um, I'm just going to step in here, and, I, and, I, and again, as we talk, we are talking about the belief system, not the people. You understand that? Those who are listening online, you don't need to send us any more texts, or you can, it's fine. You, don't, you can write us. We are not talking about individuals. We love every individual caught in every scheme of man. We love every individual that is in no scheme of man. We want to value them the way God does. That's why I want to tell you the truth. But I want you to be able to look at this system. And even some of you who say, no, no, that can't be right. You, God can't be that exclusive to say you have to only trust in the Lord Jesus. But the belief systems. I know there are many who, even this day, we will look at Seventh-day Adventism. And in many ways, people say that is a, that's not a cult. Uh, I personally disagree. Because as you Just so we're keeping score, Mormons are cults. Catholics, uh, that's a cult. Seventh-day Adventists, cult. I wonder how large this list gets. You line up with that. They believe in extra scripture to, to, to uh, their source of authority. The writings of Ellen G. White, they, her own writings say they are, they are paramount and in some places superior to the Word of God. I don't believe that. I don't there's, there's anything superior to God's Word. Uh, they have the denial of grace alone. Forgiveness that you get can be canceled. It can be taken away. If you don't continue to do the right thing and then if it's investigative judgment at the end, then we'll know who truly is going to make it and who isn't. And at this time, they believe that Jesus Christ doesn't even know who are really his kids. 
who are his children. Everything has to be done right. Um, they do believe that they're the remnant church, the only true church. And Jesus doesn't even know, as I said, until that investigative judgment, whose kids are who. Now listen, I believe, because you look at, that's the toughest one. Because in the second day, Adventist, some of you came out of that church. And I believe that you can come to know Jesus through their belief as you, as you walk into the, into the gospel. They know the gospel. But if you follow on, you will see that continually you will have to maintain areas that I don't believe are biblical because it says you have to add to this word and you have to do these things. So let me give you real quickly here two aspects. We're running out of time here. But there's two aspects that looks like cults. First is the theological one. And that's where we usually stop. Well, you know, what doctrinal issues? The number one thing is as we look at a cult to determine is what are the theological issues? Where do they depart or change from the fundamentals in God's word? Where does it depart from that or change that? Okay, so if you are theologically wrong, then you're a cult. And so what do they say about, like this week in our life, we're going to look at essentials of the faith. What do they say about God? What do they say about God? Some say that God was a man and became God. As he was, as we are, he was, as he is, we can become. We can become God. Some say that God was never eternally existent. All the different views of God. We need to look at that. We're not going to take time to look at all these, but if you want to get to a life group, we're going to look at these. The issue of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That, that mystery that we don't fully understand, but all three God, when in one, in one concept, in one flesh, in one that Jesus, being in the flesh, came, but they're all God. Did, did he just say all three God? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. What do they do with Jesus? The number one issue is what does any religion do with Jesus Christ? Do they believe in his deity, that he was fully God, that he was fully human in his, in his virgin birth, that he'll have a bodily resurrection? Wait, wait a minute. Is the virgin birth now inessential? Because I know some fundamentalists who don't even go that far. From the grave that he will return one day. That his death on the cross was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. What do they do with Jesus? Some believe Jesus was a son of God. Or is the Son of God, but not the only Son of God. Some believe that Jesus had brothers and sisters and, and in, uh, brothers especially, and even Lucifer in all those situations. How do you change? And some believe that you bring me a plan. You guys bring us a plan for redemption. And Jesus's was chosen and Satan's wasn't, so therefore there was a difference. Listen, what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with the cross? The Word. As we say the word, the essentials, if we're looking at the essentials of the Christian life, the, what do we do with God, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the word, do you believe that this word is infallible, inerrant, incomplete? And Wait a minute. Infallible, inerrant. So, um, is, I'm just curious, I don't want to read too much into this, is believing that the Bible is inerrant, is that an essential I just watched a 15-minute video, uh, thanks, Brian, with an eye, uh, with Randall Rouser explaining some of the problems with inerrantism. But this Christian is telling me that inerrantism is correct, and possibly, if you don't believe it, you're a cultist. It's so hard to keep up. Complete. 
We don't pick and choose out of it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We either either believe all of it or toss it out. I, I know and I speak to some of you in our church who just have a hard time believing that everything that is written in this word is of God. And yet it is. Examine it. Test it. See it. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it in you. The other essential that we come to, especially, is salvation by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's nothing of ourselves. We can't add or take anything from it. That salvation is by grace. It's not by your good works. It's not by those things. It is, it is a gift of God. Another essential of the faith is the second coming of Christ, that he will come again. Now, the second coming is an essential. The essential of when you believe he will come is not an essential. It's a non-essential. Whether you're post, mid, trib, whatever, you know, all those kind of things, it doesn't matter. But the belief of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So, the- I'm, okay, I'm sorry. I keep getting caught up in this. I know uh, I, I might be majoring in the minors here, but uh, he, he keeps talking about essential and non-essential. So, belief in the second coming that's essential but the timing which the bible also has plenty uh, about which to say that's unessential how do we make that distinction logically is one area but there's another area that we must consider if it's going to be seen as a cult and that is sociological now what do i mean by that sociological what followers must do as a group, as a person, or a movement. What must they do? What must they adhere to? To try to stay right with their God or in their system. To either become God or to keep your position or to make heaven. Sociologically, what must be done? In the word, that process is called sanctification. Big word. Big word, sanctification. To be set apart. To become holy. Now in cults it has various names. It's not called sanctification. Some called it exaltation. Some called it progressive. Uh, some the investigative judgment. But in those groups, it all deals with works. What must you do, not just to be saved, even those who say, oh, you may be saved, but now how do you keep that? It is really funny to me because as I have studied this, you know there's something that's really missing as I look at a lot of cults, and that is the word grace. Okay, let me, let me just pause for a moment. Um, it, it sounded like he said, uh, you know, there's theological and then there's sociological. And he's talking about the sociological, but he's, he's then uh, talking about salvation, I think the word he's looking for is satoriological. I, I could be wrong, but uh, if if you were confused by that, let's let's give him a bit of the grace he is now talking about, and assume that that's what he meant. Grace—that's pretty much become a Christian, truly, in the word God's grace and Jesus' grace. It all deals with works, and it's become widespread, even in non-cults, even in. Biblical churches who will say, yes, you come to know Christ, it's all about grace, but your sanctification is something that you have to do. In our realm, it's called progressive sanctification. In other words, we have to work for our sanctification. I disagree with that. There are great men of God who disagree with me. 
who think that, okay, well, you're saved by grace, but then you work for, to become right with God. The Christian legalist has a difficult time accepting that God has done it all. They have a difficult time with that. Marva, let's just, let's just kind of run through these verses quickly. Now, we're, we're, just get a, get a sense of these verses here, folks. Romans 15, it says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by who? The Holy Spirit. The Gentiles weren't sanctifying themselves. They were being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Marva. Thank you. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. He was talking about formerly, you were all these things. Man, you were liars, cheaters, stealers, whatever you may be. You're, you know, you were a 49er fan, whatever it may be. All these things that you, some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were saint. You were sanctified. Just as you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Is your justification complete today? The answer is yes. You've been justified, declared righteous. He took the penalty for your sin. So if your justification was done by the grace of God, so is your sanctification within that. He sees us as holy. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter here. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. All of that, he sanctifies you through and through. He does that. He doesn't say, I'm going to sanctify half of you, and then as you do the rest, but I'm going to, I'm going to add to that. And the last one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we ought always to thank God for your brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you into this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the flavor? I don't have time to explain all these verses as I've written. But within that, listen, he says it's a work that's done by him. So what he tells us is it's not that you have to live to become sanctified. He tells us to live as who you are. To live as he... Listen, any work, any work negates grace. Any work negates grace. Man, you can't find the concept of grace in cults. It's non-existent. And many of you still have a hard time with dealing with a statement, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. We all agree with that, don't we? Hallelujah, God loves us. There's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. Some of you still just kind of get all bowed up when I say there's nothing as a believer you can do to make God love you less. Man, doesn't that make you thankful? So all five of us agree we're really thankful that God doesn't look at us and say I love you less because of this and why doesn't he look at us any less because he says you know what when I look over heaven and I see you I see you through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who stands in our defense and says it's justified it's done declared righteous and holy set apart it's not what one does Paul mentioned this, it's not what one does, it's what's been done. Okay, I just want to pause right here for a theological moment and uh, make you aware of one of the games that Christians play. Now, this this guy kind of sounds like a Calvinist, <laughs> but but let's not hold that against him because what he is saying is reasonably mainstream. There's a a pretty hefty split 
among among mainstream Christians about this point. But let's just give it to him uh, as read. I, I want to make you aware of a game that pretty much all mainstream Christians play. Uh, they will say, yes, you are saved by grace and not by your works. There's no works. There are no works that you can do. However, one of the ways they do this is to redefine works that you do as not works. So the moment the moment they're redefined as something else, then, of course, uh, you're not saved by works. So if you believe, for instance, that baptism is essential for salvation, that's also another fairly mainstream split among certain groups of Christians. You must be baptized in order to be saved. Well, those who teach that would say, yes, that's true, but baptism isn't a work. No, it's it's not a work at all. Jesus did all of the work. I'm simply accessing the work that he did through baptism. You know, if 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 you win the lottery, you have the winning lottery ticket, you will not convert that into uh, into the million dollars unless you take that lottery ticket to the proper lottery authorities. Okay? The million dollars is free. I mean, you got it. But in order to have it, you have to go get it. Now, is your driving down to the lottery authority's office a work of you winning the lottery? Well, no, it isn't. <laughs> no, they would say, that's, that's, not, that's not work at all. But it's essential. <laughs> so this is this is kind of the game. And so whatever whatever things that they are telling you that you would think of in a normal way as a work of salvation, they would simply say that's not a work of salvation. Another way that they deal with this particular theological conundrum is they would say, well, that work that you did is not really a work that you did. You didn't study your Bible daily and draw closer to God in a deeper understanding of his word. That's not a work that you did at all. That's a work that the Spirit did through you. You you don't deserve any credit for that. That wasn't you doing that. That was the Spirit doing that. You see, and so it's, it's not works at all. You're, you're never saved by works as long as they can keep removing the nets and moving the goalposts. And when we understand this, his great love and his great mercy, we respond out of that love. We respond as a believer who sees how much great grace he's given us, how much great love, and why do we serve, why do we give, why do we share? It's out of love. Not out of guilt of, oh man, if I don't do it, I'm condemned. If I don't do this, then the the investigative judgments, God's going to say, oh no, you screwed up. No, let me tell you, when you fully taste grace, you fully taste serving out of love. So, uh, one more theological note. Uh, Same same issue, but uh, looking at it in a slightly different direction. So, 
Uh, yeah, it's not works because we can redefine works and, and move that definition around and we can move around the definition of who did, you know, actually did the action. So it's never works. But on the point he was making about there's nothing that you could do to lose your salvation. There's nothing that you could do to make God love you less. So you're not, you're never going to lose your salvation. What he's teaching is once saved, always saved. I can give you 10 sermons right now in about a minute um, that will tell you that that's a, do- a, a doctrine of demons. Uh, but that's fine. Let's, let's give him this point as well. What people in the once saved, always saved camp will say is, well, that's true, but if you go on to live a life of sin and evil and depravity, you're not going to lose your salvation. You were never saved, you see. And your behavior is proof that you were never saved at all. That intrinsic compulsion. We need to know the word, but not in a sterile educational textbook kind of way. But we need to know the word in a way that says you've been set free. That God wants an intimate and dynamic relationship with you and with me. His love should change us. Christ frees us from bondage. Let me tell you, the cults and even some Christian, Christian denominations will attempt to put you back in bondage by saying you must do this, you must do that. And Christ says, I've been set free. There's no condemnation. I've been declared righteous. And that's the grace of God. You don't find that often in the marks of any cult. There's a list of adherents that you must not only theologically, but sociologically deal with and adhere to. We must know the truth. But just knowing the truth so we can identify it, we must be able, this has two points, to be able to speak to those in love of the truth of the word but also for us to live in the freedom that God has given us because of his grace. Let's pray. Let's not. Uh, In fact, let's go ahead and call this one a show. I might have more to say on cults in weeks to come simply because it's such a fascinating issue. It's always been a fascinating issue to me, but, you know, having lived in a time when cults were going on, uh, in, in my lifetime that had the national spotlight and, you know, being, being in a time and place where you could see them kind of rise and grow and then die and watch the full life cycle of a cult. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff for the right kind of, uh, personality, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, it's been an, it's been, a good time to compare what people popularly think of as cults with mainstream religion. And I, I think the thing that strikes me uh, the most whenever I talk about cults or write about cults is a thing that I oft repeat. If you're in a cult, you don't know you're in a cult. You don't see it. Uh, people can tell you, man, you're in a cult you got to get out of there. And they would say, I'm not in a cult. I'm, I'm following the truth. This is, this is the, the way. Well, 
mainstream Christianity has the same kind of blind spot. Tell the average Christian that they're in a cult, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Now, get them to explain what a cult is and describe it and give the characteristics, and you can say, look, that's you, point by point. That's that's you. <laughs> they don't see it. So it's uh, it's amazing how we develop blind spots for our own uh, religious weirdnesses. And it's not just religion, as someone has pointed out. Um, cult can have a more uh, popular uh, connotation. It could it could mean uh, you know things that that don't have to do with religion. But of course, in the context that I'm talking about, I'm I'm only talking about religion. So it's it's not that I'm not aware of other definitions of cult. It's just that they don't. Uh, they don't factor into these discussions. And so when, whenever a person is involved in religion, I think one of, the, one of the interesting avenues of conversation is to talk about cults and to see if you can get them to delineate their religion and something they think of as a cult. See how they do. Probably not well. See you all next time.